Good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you decided to stay in town today and not go out in the 100-degree weather. Good choice. You know, by, by the way, uh, I, I felt, by the way, I experienced Highway 62 this morning. People are really anxious to get out of town. Yeah. So praise the Lord. About five years ago, Jenny and I decided to celebrate 4th of July, Independence Day weekend, by taking a hike up one of the table rocks. Because I don't know if you know this, but every year they say, I think we heard the planes once, but they say if you go up to the table rocks on 4th of July at certain times, they have a schedule, you'll get a flyover by those fighter jets that come down from Klamath Falls. So every 4th of July especially, we're feeling very patriotic. We feel that way anyway, I hope you do. And this particular day, although we left early in the morning, it was still very warm. And as we pulled into the parking lot there at the base of Table Rocks, there was a big glaring sign that said, beware of rattlesnakes. Like, yes, it's nice to be here. Nice to walk this trail. We weren't a hundred yards up the trail when all of a sudden Jenny stopped cold in her tracks. Boom! She heard a rattler. And we looked down, and I kid you not, two feet from her foot, we saw a rattlesnake slither into a bush and his little tail a wagon. They call those tails? Rattlers, rattlers. I should know that. This is Southern Oregon, Bill. And I couldn't believe it. Here we are, minding our own business, celebrating the freedom of our country from the iron-fisted rule back then of Britain. And as soon as we start our liberty walk, there's a rattlesnake. Venomous. Dangerous. When I think of that situation, I actually, I actually think about our text today out of the book of Galatians in the New Testament. So would you turn to the book of Galatians? In the New Testament, uh, chapter 1, I'll begin at. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey 
in the area of southern Greece, modern day southern Greece, the ancient city then was called Galatia. And you know, Paul, of course, and his band of friends and co-workers would carry the gospel out to the known world at that time and would go from village to village, dangerous or not, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news or the story of Christ's, Christ's grace and redemption. It's good news. They're going into very hostile, infected territory. Mostly in Galatia were Gentiles. Those are non-Jewish people who worshipped multiple idols. And Paul and his friends are going to go in there and teach them about the only true God and his son, Christ. There were also very, very um, squint-eyed, legalistic, rule-keeping Jews who hated Paul's message of Christ being the Messiah. Because for them, and for all of us, I think it's a human nature thing, we have their propensity to want to pridefully achieve and do better and be good and obey all of the principles that are in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons the Jews hated that message we could be, was because they cut their teeth on the Old Testament pre-Christ, which taught obedience to the law of Moses so that they would somehow attain to a righteousness which was never really impossible, never really possible. And one of the marks of a Jew was that their children on the eighth day was to be circumcised. They were one of the few countries in the world of that day where children were known by way of circumcision in terms of their faith. They were marked out as Christians. So the reason Paul writes this letter, and it's a stinging one at that, as we'll see in a moment, was many, many Gentiles and some Jews came to Christ on this journey. And they were young in their faith. But after Paul had left to go to the next area, the Jews, the false teaching Jews, would spread the venomous error that their faith in Christ for eternal life was not enough. They had to do more. And that these Gentiles who are now Christians have to not only have faith, but now they have to 
obey all of the dietary laws and be circumcised as well. Well, Paul was furious. Furious. Here the Apostle Paul, years before that, was a Pharisee. If you want to talk about the top echelon Jew and leader, it was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. And he obeyed all of the laws of the Torah. He meticulously obeyed the rituals, went to all of, to all of the Jewish holy days, and he was one of the Jews that did not believe that Jesus was the Savior. And so therefore, he started persecuting the church. He was killing entire families. Didn't matter. And thought he was doing God a favor because that added to his Jewish resume, if you will. Pharisaical, legalistic resume. Am I talking? I feel like I'm popping up there. Am I, am I okay? All right. And so Paul's on his way to Damascus. By the way, that road is still there to Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus. And he is knocked to the ground. And the Lord Jesus speaks to him. This is an interesting verse, by the way. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? In other words, when believers who follow Christ, who have understood and received his salvation by grace alone, and we suffer for our faith, nothing like other people do in the other worlds or the other countries, I might say, but Certainly rejection from family and friends that don't hold to our beliefs. But to watch what we say. That's a form of rejection. Paul really went through it then. So anytime that happens to you and I, they're not rejecting us. Or mocking us under their breath. Or to their friends. They're mocking Jesus. Just always remember that. It's not us they're against. They're against Christ. Because he said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, you touch my people, you touch me. You reject and injure my people, you reject and injure me. That's what he's saying. So Paul knew. He met Christ. He was blinded on the road to Damascus. A man named Ananias prayed for him and his eyes were open. And that was the day that he met Christ by grace alone. And the reason he was so angry at the Galatians too, because they were buying the message very early on, as you'll see. We, was because he knew he did nothing. 
to deserve salvation. It was only by Christ. And for these new converts now to start to believe that there's more that they have to do in order to earn God's forgiveness in love was straight out of the pit of hell. And he came out of his chair on this one. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Now, before I read this, let me say, if you look at most of his epistles or letters in the New Testament, he always starts with a greeting and a thanksgiving for them. And he usually builds up their faith by telling them how they're growing in the Lord and progressing. Like almost in every letter. This is one of the few he does not do this. Because he's furious at what's happening and the lie they're believing that is going to morph and poison their faith. He says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, that's Christ, deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So immediately he starts off saying, I'm quite disappointed, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished, I'm shocked. I cannot believe that so quickly you're tempted to turn your back on the forgiveness and love of Christ. He paid for your sins. He fulfilled the law already. And all you have to do, as you did when I was there, is have faith in what Christ has done, and you are free. You are no longer bound by the law. You are free, and paradise is yours. And you will reign with the king forever. He goes, I'm astonished that already you're buying into a false gospel. I can't believe it. Turn to chapter 3 real quick. He says it in a different way. Verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I don't want you to be offended by this, but uh, the Phillips translation, he was uh, he had a translation that was very modern day and pretty much like the Living Bible. And he actually says, O Galatians, how can you be such idiots? Who has made you idiots and bewitched you? led you astray. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He carried that heavy cross on his back. His shredded back. He had a crown of thorns. The thorns, by the way, in that area, they still have the thorn bushes, are that long. Crushed into a skull. 
They mocked him by throwing a purple robe on him and hitting him in the head with a staff over and over and over again. He was crucified for you. Of his own will. Not because he did anything wrong. Out of obedience to the Father. How can you so quickly forget what he did for you? He died for you. As an act of love. He just wants you to live for him. And don't listen to any error. It'll ruin your faith. He goes on to say, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Don't you remember that when you came to Christ, it was by faith alone. It had nothing to do with your obedience or the fact that you never had a traffic ticket or you've given money to the church before or you've never missed a Sunday in your life. It had nothing to do with that. It was the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish? Are you so idiotic that having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Your flesh, your acts. I mean, that helped me as a brand new Christian. That was really helpful to me because, you know, I just fell in love with Jesus overnight. Overnight. You know, some people... It takes time. They, they hear about the Lord and then they grow and then it can take months and years and it's a slow process. Not for me. I had to go down immediately or I wouldn't have lasted. Immediately. And this was very helpful because of the times of temptation that came on and I was still confused about prayer and I didn't know the gospel like I knew to do, like I needed to, but I was completely born again. No question about that. I used to remember, no, wait a minute. When I came to Christ, I wasn't even looking for him. And when he was presented to me, I slapped the person's hand away. So what's this deal about now I got to perform for the Lord? It's ridiculous. And so that helped me. Why am I getting bothered that I'm not praying long enough? That I'm not giving enough? That I'm not reading my Bible enough? Why, have, why do I still carry guilt of my past and shame? When it's, what it was all about Christ. He called me by faith. Not because of what I did or didn't do. It was by faith. I mean, isn't that a freeing message to you? then why are some of us stuck? And so he's very, very angry. I mean, he, he says to them, he calls them fools. Who has bewitched you? He says, I can't believe already. Well, it's because he's very concerned because, you know, poison and venom moves very quickly. We were just camping this last weekend, and then I was fishing at Union Creek. And probably again, I got a fish hook caught in my pinky. There's been times when that was the best catch of the day. 
And I didn't think anything about it. I just kept fishing. And um, that night, which would have been last night, last night, no, Friday night, I looked down, you, you can't see it now, but I looked down and my, my finger was twice the size my pinky as the other finger and it was purple and red. And so Nurse Jenny down here, my wife, uh, saw it again yesterday. She said, you're going to the emergency room right now. Like right now. And I did. And I'm on antibiotics. It's no big deal. My point is, it was red at first, then purple, and then it traveled down to my knuckle within 24 hours. Paul is concerned that this venomous heresy that we have to do anything for our salvation. It'll ruin your faith. It'll rip you off of your joy. It'll keep you stuck in shame. Christ wants us to be free and to trust in what he's done. Well, you go, well, no, wait a minute. You mean we can just come to Christ and we're born again and we're enjoying our salvation and that's it? I mean, like, we don't, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to fellowship. We don't, he doesn't want us to give anything. He does, no, I didn't say all that. I'm just saying that what we do after Christ is a thanksgiving for what he's already done for us. It's not a way to earn his love. It's a way to thank him for his love. There was a plane that went down over the South Pacific, and there was probably six uh, men that ended up safely in a life raft, a lifeboat, and had gone many, many, many days without being noticed. And um, they ran out of their food, and one day, a seagull landed on the raft. And they were able to catch the seagull and kill it and take the guts of the seagull and fished with it. And they had food the rest of their trip. It saved their lives. They were rescued. By the, one real, by the way, real quick, go back to chapter 1 real quick. I want to show you something. Verse 4, verse 3. Paul says to them up front, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver, my version says, the word is actually rescue. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us. We can't rescue ourselves. Someone else has to rescue us or it's not being rescued. He rescued us. He did it. We couldn't do it ourselves. And so these men on the boat, in a sense, were rescued. The war is over. They're safe now. And it's noted, Max Lucado writes this in one of his books, he says it was noted that every Friday, every single Friday, 
now an elderly, frail man, would walk to a beach in Southern California. He had a big bucket of shrimp. And he would walk out to the very, very end of the pier, and he would feed the seagulls until he ran out of shrimp. Why? Relief. Gratitude. A thankful heart that when he was dead and gone, he was rescued. So now we live before the Lord, not because we earn anything, it's already been done. It's because we love him. And we'll thank him and give back to him the rest of our life, amen? No other reason. And so that's one reason Paul is just just flabbergasted. I'll turn to chapter 5, and this is actually the text for the day. Verse 1. We read, It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So, freedom can be assaulted and threatened. Our spiritual freedom. That's why Paul says, stand. Be immovable. Don't listen to anything that is contrary to the truth of the gospel. Spin on your heels and go in the other direction. Don't even give it the time of day. Stand on the rock of truth. We're free in Christ. He said the truth will make you free. There's nothing left to do for eternal life. And do not submit again. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now we know that they used to put yoke, big wooden bar across the necks of oxen to tread out the grain in the field. The yokes were heavy. The oxen kept their head down. And that's used as a metaphor in the New Testament. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So he said, do not return to the law and the yoke that will weigh you down and keep you from standing upright and free. Don't go back to it. And believe it or not, there are a lot of well-meaning Christians who have been deceived throughout the world. And they become very, very legalistic. I had a lovely family in my church in Eureka, California, and... um, They came to church, and they were excited about the gospel. They hadn't received Christ yet. And so um, I went and visited them. And the whole family was there, like from a nine-year-old all the way up to grandpa. There was five of them. 
And they all wanted to receive Christ. They received Christ. And I tell you, you could see this family, they radiated the joy of Christ when you saw them at church. They, even the kids radiated Christ. They were baptized. And about a year later, the father, the grandfather, said, Bill, can you come over? I need to talk to you about something. So I went over his house. And he said, I found this Bible. Actually, I was, uh, I was emptying our garbage in a dump, and I found this Bible in a dump. And I started reading it. And it talked about something that you've never talked about. And I'm a little surprised that you wouldn't tell me this as a new Christian. But it talked about the sheer importance and, dare I say, necessity to be right with God, to complete the Sabbaths. And then I showed him out of Colossians that there are no special holy days. Paul says every day is alike in Christ. Actually, the new Sabbath is Sunday because he was raised on it on Easter on a Sunday, if you really want to push it. And he wouldn't have it. He was angry at me. Because I had him taught, taught this before. He was unreasonable. I couldn't, I couldn't persuade him that Christ fulfilled all of the laws, including the Sabbath. And the more I tried to explain, the angrier he, angrier he got. He lost his joy. They stopped coming. Never seen them again. Perfect example of running across new information that seems interesting, that's contrary to what we read in the New Testament. And they became legalistic. Now it was about Sabbath keeping, not only their faith in Christ. And it breaks your heart. When you see it, it breaks your heart. So Paul says, stay strong and firm in your former state. And don't get caught, I would call it, the crazy cycle of our works. Don't get caught in the crazy cycle of our flesh and our good deeds. Now I was raised in a church and was very involved as a younger boy. And in the church that I believe, that I went to, that I was raised in, we were taught that it wasn't a mere matter of faith in Christ, although we heard good, some good teaching on that. But we were also taught that good deeds was most important. You see, we as believers now, we know good deeds comes after our conversion because we love the Lord and it's with a thankful heart. This church said, no, you earn your salvation first and then maybe you might have enough faith to go to heaven. Maybe. 
They also taught us that if we sin, like if, when we sin, every Saturday we would have to go to a confessional. And it was kind of a little room, really tiny, where we'd go in and sit down and there was a dark screen in between the priest and us. And we would have to confess our sins. After we confessed our sins, you see, because unless we did this, we couldn't have communion. We couldn't even take of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ unless we went to that confessional and talked to that priest. We couldn't go straight to Jesus like we can now. That's freedom, yes? Let's call that freedom. And so they would tell me that I had to say a certain amount of prayers. And then after I prayed what they told me to pray, I would have God's grace and forgiveness and can take communion the next day. Well, unfortunately, that mindset or that habit doesn't go away when you turn 18. So now I'm a Christian, I'm in Christ, going back 70, 47 years, not 70 years, 47 years. 47 years. And I still have this thought process that I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. So I'd still have events in my past where I felt incredibly shamed. I felt that I have to pay, I gotta do a penance. I used to tell my pastors, I gotta do a penance now. No, 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 no. Christ saved you by his love and grace and forgiveness. Penances aren't necessary anymore. Yeah, it's true that if we sin and we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, but that's not for him, that's for us. And it shows that we depend on him. And we love him for his sacrifice. And so I would go through these like cycles where, you know, if I did do something wrong and I yielded to temptation, if, when I yielded to temptation, you know, I would feel so bad about it when all I would have had to have done is confess it to the Lord Jesus. And sometimes it's, it's appropriate to talk to another brother. James says, of, um, Share your faults with one another that you may be healed. Share your sins with another that you might be healed. There's a time to do that too, with each other. Actually, a matter of fact, it actually has some healing properties for sure. So I would just like sit in kind of misery until I felt that I sat in misery long enough. It's, it's, it's kind of like, hey, I'm depressed and I'm going to be in charge of how long I'm depressed. Thank you very much. And then time would pass, and I go, well, I guess it was long enough, and you know, now maybe I feel forgiven. It's ridiculous. The crazy cycle. And it didn't help when I was a younger man, I was 19, and I wasn't a Christian yet, that I asked a, a man, I found out he was a minister, and I worked with him in downtown San Francisco, 
And I, was very, I knew my life was pretty wild and very, very sinful. And I asked them one time, cause kind of third person, like, what would God say to someone if they said this or they did this? Or would God let someone in heaven that did that? And I was talking about myself, of course. And when I cited a couple of different heinous, yet forgivable, sins, you know what this man said to me? As a wayward 19-year-old, the Lord would never forgive that. That person you're speaking of, I'm going, oh God, will never walk through the gates of heaven. So you can imagine, and then I just thought as a 19-year-old, well, you know, we hear it today, and it, kind of, it makes my hair on my neck stand up. There's only one life to live. Live it to your fullest. No, there's more than one life to live. There's another life called eternal life that is a whole lot longer. And so you can imagine the relief in the sense of rescue I had four years later when I met Christ. That's amazing. See, it's not about anything we achieve. It's about something we receive. We don't achieve anything. We receive everything. So Paul says, don't go back. Now, you've heard, there's a couple of examples I want to, want to give you. We used to work, or I used to go to a church that wasn't far from a, a women's gospel rescue mission. And uh, they did a fantastic work there. Many, many women met Christ there. But there was also a very sad statistic that women who had been abused severely, um, eight or nine out of ten of them would go back. Why would they go back? To abuse and to violence and to hate, and to selfishness. Why? Well, it was their pattern. It was their source of income. Whatever it is, it's not normal, healthy, or right. And that's what Paul says. Christ broke your chains, or even... Our patriots going back to Britain, back under the iron rule after they had the freedom of a new land. What makes sense about that? So when Christ was on the cross and he had his final seven words that he gave while he was dying, we hear about him usually on Good Friday. One of the last phrases before he said into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. One of the last phrases was, it is finished. It is finished. And what it actually meant was paid in full. I have taken my father's wrath on sin. I am the sheep that was slaughtered for the sins of the world. 
And now if you pick up your cross and follow me and have faith, you will be forgiven as well. So in the Roman prisons of that day, when a slave, you know we were born slaves to sin. You do know that, don't you? I mean, I remember when my daughter, Christina, who was so cute at the age of two, you know, she was the only one at that time, and here I was a pastor, but at that time, something came over me about this little girl, and I thought, maybe, maybe this is the first person that hasn't been born in a sin. Until I gave her a chocolate chip cookie when she was sitting in her high chair right before her mother gave her lunch. And then I tried to take it away. I said, Christina, you're definitely a sinner. Born into sin. You did know that already, though. So when there was a prisoner held in a Roman cell and their sentencing was up or a bail was made or they let a man go once a year, maybe emancipated a person once a year, they would put a sign outside of his cell and the sign read, Tetelestai. Paid in full. And once that sign is put there, the cell doors are open. Their chains are taken off. And they walk out a free man. Now, suppose that happened and the prisoner just sat there. And said, no, I'm more comfortable in these chains. Are you more comfortable in the chains of your past and of good works? They're pretty heavy. Yoke is heavy, too. The Lord wants you to be free. He doesn't want to have you. He doesn't want you to have another guilty moment for anything you've done pre-Christ. Not once. So when you do, because the accuser of our brethren is a snake. And he's around every bush, you know, in our journey of life. He'll put the venom of guilt in you so fast. How can you call yourself a Christian? You go to church, you go to trail. You lift your hands. I know what you're really like. I know what you thought last night. He's there to accuse. He's the accuser of the brethren. Walk out of the cell in the power of the risen Savior. Ask him to pull you out if need be. And then you've heard that other example of the Japanese soldier that was fighting on an island in the South Pacific. And he was the only survivor. And whoever he was fighting, I don't know if they were Americans or, or what, who he was fighting against, particularly probably Americans in the South Pacific. 
but there were other armies that were our allies. And he hid in the jungle, and he lived there by himself for 20 years, living on bugs and plants. He still carried his rifle. He still ran through the brush as if he was running from the enemy. For him, the war was on. And he wasn't free from the battlefield. Paul says, your Savior already died on the battlefield. Come home. Look at verse 2. He explains what he's saying here. Chapter 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, in other words, if you believe the lie and you're circumcised, and can you imagine being circumcised as an adult? If you accept circumcision as another deed to be righteous before God, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You don't need the Lord then. If you're going to do it on your own, do it on your own. Christ is of no advantage to you. If you're going to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just be a better citizen. Thinking that will gain God's favor or his attention. You're wrong. Be good citizens though. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. So, okay, if you want to do it, if you want to play it that way, Paul is saying, if you want to start following the law, every jot and tittle, dietary laws, get circumcised, obey everything, keep the Sabbath without fail to the degree that they did then, we're supposed to still supposed to take a day of rest. That's a different sermon right there. Then that's your lot in life. You are, then he says, listen to this one. You are actually severing yourself from Christ. Like you're cutting yourself off. The only way to have breath in our lungs, we sang about it this morning, is through Christ. Period. He is and will always be our oxygen. His love and grace. Amen? You are severed from Christ. Verse 4. You who would be justified by the law. Justified means that because Christ shed his blood, we are now forgiven. Justified means to be forgiven by the shedding of Christ's blood. He says, you who are justified by the law, which you can't be justified by, they thought they could be, you have fallen away from grace. You've fallen away from grace. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Look at verse 7. Picture of running a race. Look at this. Like how many ways can Paul say this? For you were running well. He's talking about running a race, like an Olympian stadium. Or the Isthmian stadium. Olympics. It was the Isthmian Olympics in Corinth. You could still see the field and the judgment seat. 
that they went to stand at to get a wreath over there if they over their head if they won the race. It's still there. You were running well. You started off well as a believer. I saw you. You were there. Your race of faith was pure. It was a gift from God. And you were running well, trusting Him all the way. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In other words, someone cut right in front of you. Who cut you off? Who who kept you from running the race? Who slowed you down? Who kicked your feet out from under you? In the race of faith that God called us all to. We're all in that same race, you know. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And for those of you that bake, you know. It doesn't take a lot of leaven to cause that dough to rise fast. It doesn't take a lot of self-righteous works to cause us to be puffed out and into a legalistic life. And then if that wasn't enough, turn to chapter 4. And I'll close on this particular passage. Chapter 4. Actually, I'll read one verse. Out of, you can stay at chapter 4, but there's also one verse I'll read you in uh, chapter 3. But now that faith has come, you are all sons and daughters through faith. We are now sons and daughters because of our faith. Okay, turn to chapter 4. Look at verse 4, chapter 4, Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, he's talking about the birth of Christ, God's time schedule. It had to happen at a precise moment. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem, to purchase, to buy back. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Do you realize The moment you took your first breath after being born again, you had a new adoptive father when you came to Christ. We're adopted. Do we have any adopting adopting parents here you've adopted before? Anybody been adopted here? Okay. One of the greatest gifts of life is to adopt someone that's not yours. And that's why he uses this illustration, by the way. He says, and because you're sons of God, he adopts you as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. It's a term of endearment. And he's proving to these Galatians who are going astray You don't belong to yourself anymore. God has adopted you into his family. You belong to this new family. You get the family name. You get the family protection, the family food, 
the family love, the family inheritance. Look what he says next. So if you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, you're a son. You're an heir. You not only have received Christ through grace, but because of that, you've been adopted into God's family. And Christ now is our brother. The Bible actually says he's our brother. He's our Lord and our Savior, but he's also our brother. And when God sees you and I, Pastor Rick has said this many times, when God sees you and I, he sees us as Christians with the same passion and love. We're in the same family. And far from being ashamed of who we are and where we've come from, he has pride over your life every second of your life. He's proud of you. Sitting at a dinner table one time, uh, my son Michael was 10. And we're having dinner with the mothers of my children and my other two children. And my son, who's very gracious, kind of a one-word guy, you know, for the, you logical folk out there, one-word answers. Out of nowhere, he's very kind and sweet, but he's not highly emotional like me. Mom, Dad, right in the middle of dinner, I really love you. I said, well, thanks, son. We love you, too. What's going on? Oh, no, 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 he said. I... And then later, he goes, no, really? Really? Like you're the best parents. So after dinner, I said, Michael, come here. What's going on? He said, Dad, I got my first F in math. <laughs> I love it. I said, son, I got to ask you a question. Do you feel that I'm any less proud of you or love you less on any level as your father because you got an F? I don't think so, Dad. <laughs> I go, son. I don't love you for your grades. I'm not proud of you for your grades. I love you because you're my son. I would die for you, Michael. Do you believe me? Yes, I believe you, Dad. I said, good. Now, why'd you get enough? <laughs> I mean, is there anything you can do to bring up that grade? I mean, you got to get that settled first. Never forget it. Do you know there's a verse in Zephaniah 3.17 that says, God twist with dancing over us with singing over his people? 
Throw your shoulders back. Put your head up. We're children of the king. And our brother laid his life down for us. Please. Ask the Lord to set you free today. I close with this story. Uh, Martin Luther, who was like one of the founders of the Reformation, who was formerly, he was Catholic. He, uh, uh, one of the rituals, he was a monk actually, he was a monk, and one of the rituals they had in order to gain favor with God was they had to, they didn't have to, but if they wanted to be closer to God, they would have to climb 29 church steps in Rome on their knees. And each step, they would have to say the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And so as they, he kneeled or crawled, crawled up those steps, he started asking himself, is this really true? I'm sure he said it a little more convincing with each step. Is this really true? And he goes on to say that he went all the way up. But in the recent past after he did that, he realized the truth that salvation comes through grace and faith alone. Not from crawling your way through good deeds. I saw a bumper sticker the other day. And I loved it so much, I almost went off the road. (laughs) On this day especially, or on this weekend, as United States citizens, believe it or not, we live in a free country. As Christians... Christ has set us free to give us freedom. We're citizens of heaven, too, by the way. More heaven than here, actually. So this is what the bumper sticker said. We stand for the flag, but we kneel at the cross. Would you please stand with me? And we're going to have our worship group come back and close with a Song, one that was very, very appropriate for this passage. As they come, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray specifically for anyone, Lord, that has not, for whatever the reason, enjoyed their freedom like guilt-free, a guilt-free Christian life. We know that you send conviction when we do wrong. And you lift it when we confess our sins. But I pray especially for those that still have chains dangling and they, it's their childhood, it's their, they can't seem to feel loved 24-7-365. Would you bring that change in their heart, Lord Jesus? Beginning right now. In your name we pray. Amen.